Well, I'd like to invite you to turn in your sanctuary Bible or your own Bible to Luke chapter 13. And we'll look at 10 through 17, and that's found on page 1092 of the Bible here in the church. Luke 13, 10 through 17. And I want to say a few words of introduction before we begin. Uh, put this into context. In the context where we are in Luke, ever since Luke chapter, the end of Luke 8, beginning of Luke 9, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He had had a ministry in the Galilee, but he resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem so that he could go to the cross and do what God had asked him to do and to redeem the world. And so he's, he's quite resolute on his way. He doesn't stop for a lot, but he does stop for some things. And that's telling what he actually stops for and what he doesn't stop for. And so in this case, he stops to teach. And, and as we'll see in future chapters of Luke, especially as we get to the, like chapters 14, 15, and so on, he stops to tell parables. And that's where we get, for example, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the parable of the two lost sons. Sometimes we call that the parable of the prodigal son. We've talked about that. It's probably the wrong name for that parable. So he stops in order to teach. He stops in order to do other things, to heal and to redeem people. And in this case, while he's stopping to teach, he also has an opportunity to heal but this healing is more than just a physical healing. There's a spiritual component to it, as we'll see. And so he's also stopping so that he can once again assert his authority over the demonic forces that are at work in the world that keep people in a state of unwellness. And so he stops because where he's going, to Jerusalem, to the cross, that is the ultimate and final place in which he uh, engages in a spiritual battle over darkness and wins so that he can free people from bondage to sin, darkness, and the devil. And so he does that in, in this particular setting. So um, it looks like, uh, and even talking about it this morning, it's kind of interesting, it looks like evil is prevailing the world over. It really does. It just kind of feels that way. But it's really good to remember that at the cross, evil was defeated. And the seeds of its, although, and you could say decisively in the spiritual sense, but in a latent sense, it has, didn't all happen at once. Because as we see, evil didn't disappear the day that Jesus went to the cross. But here's how I would think of it, is the seeds of the defeat of evil were planted that day. And they were watered with the blood of Jesus Christ. And they were fertilized by his suffering. And that plant is growing. And it, on some level it has already burst out of the ground. And it's bearing fruit. And at other places in this world it is yet to burst out. And eventually it will dominate this world. And it will bring about the end of all evil. And that is one of those things in, in Christian theology where we talk about something that has already happened, but it's also not yet quite completely happened. So we say it's already, but not yet. And we live in this really unique time in between the already and the not yet. And we live in what we could even consider a creative tension between what's already happened and the final culmination or the final manifestation of what God is doing in the world. And so you could say that you live in the most interesting and the most exciting times that have ever been. Of course, don't forget that there's an old proverb, which is actually a curse. May you live in 
interesting times. Yeah, this, this, that's like, oh, that sounds nice. No, that's a curse, right? So it's both, and so for us, it's both at the same time. It's both fascinating to see what the world is like and comforting to know that God will ultimately prevail, but it's also a curse to watch this evil at work in the world. And so Jesus has a word for evil today as we read. And I want to talk a little bit before we start the reading about what problem he encountered. He's teaching at the synagogue and a woman comes to him who had been, or a woman appears who had been bent over for 18 years, whether it was scoliosis or some other kind of spine ailment so that she was bent over. And the Greek text here is ambiguous as to what exactly is limiting her in the sense that it's either she cannot straighten all the way up, in other words, she's so bent over that she can't go all the way straight up, or you could read it as she's bent over and she could not straighten up at all. Do you see the difference? And that's, even in English, you could kind of maybe get the, so in one sense is, and this is kind of important, is that she's so bent over, but she can bend up a little bit, but she can't straighten all the way up. The other sense is that she's so bent over that she cannot straighten up at all. Sounds like the same thing, but it's different. Anyways, we'll get to that. So in other words, she's bent, and it, it says it lays the responsibility for this condition that she's in on the doorstep of an evil spirit. Responsibility is that she is beset by some kind of demonic force, not possessing her because she's not exhibiting the um, sort of the signs of demonic possession, but there's, there's a, maybe a lesser grade of this, and you, it's kind of hard to parse this in, in the scriptures, but she may be under demonic influence, which is maybe a step down from possession. We can't get into this too much, so the angelology and demonology of the New Testament, but there's a demonic influence that's affecting her body. She's still able to come to the synagogue. She's still able to participate in worship. But yet, there's a demonic influence that has a physical manifestation in that she cannot straighten up all the way, or she cannot straighten up at all. So, with that introduction, let's look at our reading. It's on page 1092, Luke 13, 10 through 17. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I'd like you to imagine, um, to make it easy, imagine that somebody had been coming to our church for 18 years. Now, to imagine that, you, you shall have been coming to this church for at least 18 years. So, for the quick raise of hands, who's been coming to this church for at least 18 years? One, two, a lot. Wow, okay, good. Yes, the rest of you have been coming for less than 18 years. I've been coming to this church for almost five years. And I like it. Thank you. It's great. Um, in fact, I, I keep forgetting, August 1st was my 15th anniversary as a covenant pastor. Can you believe it? I can scarcely believe it. August 1st, 2001, I started at this tiny little church called Svea Hill Covenant. Actually, it was called Community Covenant Church at Svea Hill. Tiny little church off one of the county highways in uh, Minnesota, a, sub, a distant, distant suburb of the Twin Cities. And they had 20 people in the church, so you should feel great, you know. And I, I would come and preach, and then on Wednesdays I would come from 1 p.m. to about 5 and have dinner with a different family of the church every week. And that only lasted about five weeks, and then I had to, I had to, I had to start over. And, um, and we would have a Bible study that evening, and I'd have office hours. And that was for about four or five months. And then I went off to Iowa, and I was there for almost two and a half years. Then I went to Scotts Valley, California for over seven years, and I've been here with you for almost five years. And um, I, I got lost here. I got lost. Just reminiscing. And then Chris and I, yesterday was our 11th wedding anniversary. So like all sorts of anniversaries and broken arms in our family. So we got a lot going on. A lot going on. But um, imagine that you've been coming to this church for 18 years, and somebody had also been coming to your to our church for all those 18 years, and they were always just bent over like this. So just imagine, you know, and everywhere they went, they, you know, they would kind of look up, you know, hello. They weren't in a wheelchair, just walking around like this. and They couldn't straighten out, no matter what happened, no matter what doctors they visited, they were just always straightened out. And maybe you, over the years, had a range of feelings about this. Like, when you first met this person, you were like, um, you remind me of Igor from the Frankenstein thing. You know, you might be like, ugh. Or you might be like, why can't this get fixed? We have an orthopedist in the church. You know, why, why can't, what's happening? And, and, you know, why isn't this getting fixed? And then kind of, you kind of got used to it. And you're like, oh, that's so-and-so who's kind of bent over. And then you just, you thought, well, that's normal. Or then you'd say, after years, you would just say, well, that's kind of sad. All these years, not being able to reach the peanut butter jar in the cabinets and, you know, having to need... And how do they drive their car? And you just kind of settled into this kind of spot where you're like, that's just really sad. All the 18 years and it's been this way. Oh, I just really feel for them, you know. So imagine that. For 18 years, this has been going on in your midst. And it's just part of your life together. Right? And then one day they show up. And somebody in the church lays hands on them and heals them. Okay? Just imagine that part, right? So... Would you be like, oh, I'm glad that happened. That was about time. You know, it was bound to happen. Or would there be some, what other reaction, <laughs> kind of pushing the point here, but what other reaction could we maybe get that day? Woo! Can you believe it? 18 years they had to wait for that. Finally, they can reach, they can straighten all the way up. And whatever they've been going through, it got fixed somehow that day. Like, wouldn't that make a ripple in the body? If it didn't make a ripple in the body, I'd be like, you all dead. Right? If that doesn't make a ripple, then I, something's really wrong. 
That's got to make a huge ripple. Here's somebody bound for 18 years in this physical infirmity, and it gets healed instantly by, by spiritual force, by somebody laying hands on them, by somebody teaching, speaking the God's word to them, and it happens, right? Now, imagine somebody in the church stood up at that moment and said, you know, that wasn't done the right way. That just, that didn't meet the, that just wasn't. What, would, that, would we just take that person out, you know, and tar and feather them and, you know, ride them out on a rail? I don't know what we would do with them. I hope we'd be, we would be kind to that person. But, you know, this is kind of what happened. On this day, a woman bound by Satan for 18 years is healed by Jesus. And the response is, we've talked about this before, like, this is one of the things that evil does, is it kind of ruins the moment. And it usually does so by talking. You know, you can really ruin the moment by talking and saying the wrong thing into that place. Not being with the spirit of what's happening in that moment. And so here's somebody who's not with it. Not in tune with the spirit. And he says, there are six other days on which you could come to the synagogue to be healed. Don't do this on the Sabbath. Now think about that. If there were six days to be healed, why was this woman still bent over? Right? Even by his own admission, he's admitting that for 18 years, of 52 weeks of those years, of six of those days of the 52 weeks of the last 18 years, this synagogue has been unable to help this woman. So that is even kind of a lame argument. There are not six other days on which this woman could have been healed, or she would have been healed. Do we all get that? She would have been healed by now if that was actually true. The reality is she was healed not because of the power of the synagogue or not because of the day of the week, but because of the presence of the person who was with them, who was asserting his authority over the demonic because of who he was. He was God's son, and he was going to the cross to also assert his authority over darkness and the demonic and liberate the world from a bondage that was much longer than 18 years and far worse than being bent over and unable to straighten up all the way. So that's what happens, is somebody ruined the moment. That often happens around Jesus. People don't like what he's doing, and so they kind of have to, they have to try to throw a wet blanket on things, and, it, and they end up looking ridiculous. Now, I want <clears throat> to take a tiny detour here and actually try some sympathy for this person. Are you all with me? Is anyone feeling charitable? We have to put the best construction on what people are doing, I think. It's good. And I want to try to do that with the, this ruler of the synagogue, the leader of the synagogue. And that is that he had a strong sense, and Jesus talks him out of this later, he had a strong sense that the Sabbath was not to be used for healing because it was a form of work in his mind. And we don't do work on the Sabbath because that's what God has commanded. So there's a real pious, we hope, really pious and meaningful reason behind that is we want to be obedient to God. It's more about more than that because there's, there's something where he's actually elevating keeping of the law above somebody else's well-being. Does that make sense, right? I mean, that's what he's doing. You really should not heal on the Sabbath even though it means that somebody who's been bound for 18 years suddenly has a new lease on life. And this, you know, you're weighing it in these scales 
And the law is actually, the law is coming out heavier. If the law is in this hand, the law weighs more. And so it is more weighty for me. And so I'm going to emphasize the law. And I want to be, th- I want to be sympathetic to him a little bit about this. And I want to show what Jesus' task was in his teaching and his preaching from here and in all of the New Testament. The law, as it turns out, was good. Keeping the it's a law we don't keep very well. But we've, we've tried in our family, we've tried actually having a day where we turn off all electronic devices, including TVs and phones and radios and all sorts of things, and, and we can either read or talk to each other. Oh, I mean, you know. Or we can play games like cards or talk, you know, play with our kids. And um, that's hard. I mean, it's just hard. It's hard to do this. It's hard to find a day to do this. It's hard to do this. Um, and I, to that, I would try to, I would add, like, driving your car. And not as a legalistic thing, but because it's good for our souls. Because it focuses us on God. And I think this is the, the reason for the Sabbath. Is to, is to, is that it's made for man. It's made for man, not for God, necessarily. So keeping the Sabbath is a good law. There were so many laws that the people, even in Jesus' time, who went to synagogues kept, that were so good. There were dietary laws that kept them alive. I mean, you've got to face this. There were some really good laws about what to eat, what not to eat, how to prepare your food, how not, what to do in terms of just basic sanitation that the rest of the world really hadn't gotten yet. And so God's people were protected by his law. Not only that, the law created for them an identity, this is important, an identity, a group identity, that sustained them through some of the most horrific types of things that ever befell a nation. They were invaded, they were exiled, they were genocided. You cannot find a group of people that have a contiguous or a continuous identity as long as the Jewish people. You can't find one. If you look, if you look at empires, the longest lasting empire, maybe 1,400 years. But even during that time, you could say that there had been change in culture, change in uh, religion, in, even inside that culture. But, but empires start and they end. But here are a group of people who have been following God's word and obeying his law. And you could really say a lot of the identity of the Jewish people is around the law. You talk to a rabbi. You compare notes with somebody who goes to rabbinical school as opposed to somebody who goes to seminary. And they'll say, yeah, I went to rabbinical school. And I spent three years studying dietary law. Can't you do that in an afternoon? I mean... but no, three years they spent studying dietary law. And, I, and then I think, well, how does that preach? Every Sunday are you going to talk about what kind of food? Isn't it like there's a list of foods you can eat and there's a list of foods you can't eat, isn't it? You know? But the more you get into the law, the more nuanced it is. And it's possible to decipher. I'm talking about how great the law is now. It's possible in, to decipher in God's law this incredible love story that he has for his people where he crafts for them an identity and he crafts for them a protection and a care and a love. And so when the best possible interpretation of this man's thinking is, the law is life. Without the law, we wouldn't have been here. The law is life. It protects us. It gives us hope. It gives us a place to look. It points us to our creator and our father. And so the law is more important than this particular lady who had 18 years of illness she should have come a different day. I, do you all see what I'm saying? Is 
on some level, whether we like it or not, we wanted to tar and feather him and write him out of the rail here. Yes, Ona. Please put me on the spot. It's great. Sure. Um, I can't, uh, I don't know where anywhere in the Bible it says you may not heal on the Sabbath, but, but healing is work. It, if, it gets, if it gets put in the category of work, then you cannot work on the Sabbath. That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, at least in, to this person and many other people that Jesus met, they did not like him healing on the Sabbath because to them it was work. Um, and it probably is work, right? Because it involves some sort of transaction. And all sorts of transactional things are work in that system. Does that make sense? What happened now is great. Really, raise your hand like Ona if you want, if you want to put me on, not, not just to put me on the spot. You can, you can, but just to clarify. So anyway, we were going we to run this guy out on the rails, but in the best possible construction, he, he may just have an intense love affair with the God who gave the law, and the law being a source of life and identity and hope. Okay? And so this actually makes Jesus' task a little more nuanced because it's not as simple as the law is bad and grace is good or, or all this other stuff is good. But it's, he has to kind of say, look. And, and so he uses a legal argument with them. He says, actually, even though... Even though you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, it turns out that many of you do do work on the Sabbath, and there seems to be a provision for it, which is you have an animal. And you have to take care of this animal because it's vulnerable, it needs you. God put it in the order of creation below you. You're responsible for it. And it needs to be led out of its stall, unbound from the rope that you've tied it up with, and led over to the well so that it can drink water. That's permissible under the law. Even you guys would agree to that, he's saying, in essence. So, here's the argument. How much more valuable is a woman than a donkey or an ox? Now, that's a loaded question back then, right? You know? If it had been a man, maybe this would have been a different question, because there was a lot of sexism back then. But then Jesus kind of takes it up a level. She's not just a daughter, but a daughter of Abraham. One of the chosen people, one of your sisters, one of your, your sisters or your mother or your daughter. How much more valuable is this child of Abraham than one of your oxes or donkeys? So why not heal her? And how much more is bondage to Satan for 18 years? How much greater is that than thirst? Okay? So there's all sorts of comparisons going on. And so he makes a legal argument. But what he's really going at is he's saying, you have your rules, and yes, they brought you life. But I'm, I'm coming to rebalance these scales. And I'm going to value life. And not just that. This is the important thing. This is why, where the spiritual side of it comes in. I'm not just valuing life, but I'm valuing liberation over law. Because what happened here today wasn't just a simple healing of a physical problem. What happened here today was a defeat of the demonic that kept this woman at bay for 18 years. 
And so Jesus is really reshifting the scales and saying, what matters the most in this world, even though the law is great and it's, and it's a wonderful thing and it is definitely a testament to what God has done for you and how much he loves you, what I'm going to do for you here today is I'm going to free you from demonic bondage. He says it himself. This woman whom, it, it, he really escalates it, Satan himself has kept bound for 18 years. I'm going to defeat Satan today in your midst because what I'm pointing to is far more important. I'm going to value your life and your spiritual freedom so much that I'm going to go to the cross myself in just a few weeks' time. So that's Jesus' challenge. Now, the downside of the law is that once we start thinking that we can keep it well enough to make a difference, which we should all know, as Protestants, you cannot. That's probably, we'll have to say that for another day, but I just want you to know you cannot keep the, well, the law well enough to really make a difference in God's eyes. You, you've, you have failed already, uh, almost just by being born. Sorry, this is, it's not your fault. It is and it isn't. It's complicated. But um, if you think, and here's the thing, this is maybe the challenge, I think, for this person in the synagogue who was indignant. By the way, um, I'm going to read this word. It's so funny how, um, how um, Greek words are sometimes onomatopoetic. Y'all remember that word? It's where the word kind of sounds like the thing. And so when the Pharisees were grumbling, they were gogizomai, gogizomai, like they were grumbling about it. And now, so there's a word for indignant in Greek is aganakteo. Aganakteo. He was aganakteo. He was indignant. He was indignant that Jesus, he was aganakteo. Anyways, it's great. It's what a great language. He was aganakteo. Doesn't that sound like it? Doesn't indignant sound like indignant? Indignant. I guess that's how you say it. I could say that with any word, right? Beautiful. Yeah, that's not. <laughs> Maybe it's not. Beautiful is beautiful. I am lost. I am lost. Um, here's the thing. If, if you think you can keep the law well enough to make a difference, then you're in control. And that's the scary thing sometimes for us because we like to be in control. Uh, we just took the kids to Great America, and, and I've lost the wonderment of the roller coaster because I know what's going to happen. But here's the reality. Once you get on a roller coaster and the thing goes on, click, 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 and holds you in place, and you're about to go on two loops and three corkscrews, you have lost control, okay? Especially when it gets to the very top and it's about to start trending down. Listen, is there anything you can do in that moment to stop the roller coaster? I can't think of anything. You could scream as loud as you want, but the people are going to be like, yeah, we'll stop the roller coaster for you, but it's, it's just going to be at the end of the ride. You know, it's just, there's nothing that's going to stop this. In fact, stopping it now would just be really dangerous. We're not going to stop it at the top of the loop-de-loop because then it would fall out, you know. It's, once you've started on that, you have given up control. And you're on the journey, and it's going to be terrifying. And you're going to have these things where you're going to say, why did I give up control like this? I mean, this is the part I've lost because I know it's the downside of being an adult. You know, you lose your sense of wonder and uncertainty. But for a child, you're like, am I going to survive this? Am I going to make it? You know, the adults are like, oh, yeah, we'll make this. But the children are like, ah, you know, they really are scared going down that first one. 
And I think that's what Jesus is inviting people into. If you have the law, you can control everything. You think you can, it's an illusion. But you, if you have the law, you can control everything. But if you give up on that and you prioritize life and you let me be in control, it's like riding on a roller coaster. And you, the only thing you could do is maybe, have you guys seen the chair challenge where people are trying to climb under a chair and over a chair altogether? You could try to do that in the, in the roller coaster and jump out of the roller coaster as it's going, but that's just not gonna go well. I mean, that's your only choice is to try to jump out of the roller coaster. Reality is you're in the roller coaster until the end and you get off and you're like, that was amazing. I'm so glad I went. Let's do it again, right? That's what it's like when you embark with Jesus. Jesus is kind of like the guy at the roller coaster, and he's standing next to the turnstile. And he's saying, get on this thing. You're going to have to give up control. You're going to have to give up what you think you can do, and you're going to have to let me do. And you're going to have to strap into this thing, and no amount of screaming while you're on the way is going to stop it. But at the end, you're going to say, that was amazing. That's what Jesus is inviting them to. And that's what's so hard, because it's a change. It's a change for us. And we have to be... I think we have to be thoughtful, forgiving, um, accommodating to a certain point to people who are afraid of change. And I think that's what was going on in the synagogue there that day too. The change was blowing through that place. Something that had been stuck for 18 years got unstuck. And that's terrifying. And so we, we speak into that moment and we ruin it if we're stuck on the law, if we're stuck on trying to control things ourselves, it doesn't work. So I want, um, I think, here's a couple things I want you to do. Go on a roller coaster. You still can. There's still time. Or practice being out of control. Trust the thing you're sitting in, okay? But practice being out of control. Make sure you trust what you give control to. Um, so, I said before that it's kind of interesting, this question of, can this woman not straighten up all the way, or can she not straighten up all, at all? And I think maybe both, or, or maybe it doesn't quite matter, but the reality is that, that she was kept from being straight. And straight kind of works in two ways, doesn't it? You know, it's like she was kept from, on a spiritual level, her body was kept from being straightened up. And it was only through Jesus that she was able to straighten up all the way or straighten up at all, either way you like it. And um, I think there's something, I think, I know, what am I saying? I think I know. That's why I read this story to the children. There is something bent over inside of us. It's original sin. It's our life. It's who we are. There's, it's just bent. And um, I'll tell you that we're trying to sell... Krista's old car that I broke, okay? Um, the car has a bent frame. You know anything about cars? Once it has a bent frame, it's got a bent frame. And unless you want to pay more than the value of the car to replace the frame, which even almost makes no sense with some frames, then the car is permanently bent, and it's permanently characterized by that bent. I was driving through a grassy field at the edge of a beach cliff because I was going to officiate a wedding. And I, I was going over these bumps and I hit something really hard with the bottom of the front of the car. And it $3 like materialized in front of my face and then caught flame and, and, and turned into ash. That was it. It's almost like that happened. 
But that's really what happened, you know. And um, I tried selling that car this week, and I disclosed that the frame is bent, and that broke the deal. Even though I disclosed it, somebody came and looked at it, they drove it, they, and they just said, uh, it just is too much of a risk. I don't want to buy a car with a bent frame. I thought maybe I could, but I don't want to buy your car. And so my car has the permanent stain of a bent frame. And we took it to the shop, and you can bend it back. You can't unbend a bent frame. It's, an, it's Now the car is in an irredeemable category. So you either have to sell it for a whole lot less, or we have to donate it to somebody, or I don't know, send it to a... Where do cars get buried? I don't know. I wish that Jesus would come and unbend my car. This is a little selfish. I wish Jesus would come and unbend my car. He loves me. He loves my car. He's not going to unbend my car. He's not a mechanic, and even he can work miracles. But he's not going to lay hands on my car and say, straighten up. It's not going to happen. But he does come and he does unbend me. Thank God for that. I am bent. I'm in an irredeemable category. I can't sell myself to anybody because they would say, you're bent. I'm not going to take the risk on that. But he comes and he unbends me when he vanquishes the power of evil and sin. And now I can straighten up at all, and I can straighten up all the way. Not because of anything I've done. Because the Lord of the universe has come and unbent me. So, this is the funny thing I want you to think this week. I am the unbent. Can you all say that? I am the unbent. Go ahead. I am the unbent. You are the unbent. God has unbent you through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He shows what unbending looks like. He lays hands on. He vanquishes evil. He speaks a word. And the demonic dissipates completely. So I want you to remember that you're unbent. I want you to go on a roller coaster and give up control. And I want you to open yourself up to the power of God to dispel darkness and bring us to life. Open yourself up to that power. And listen, I'll tell you, like I said earlier, I kind of need this. I'm preaching to myself right now. I need this this week. I need it. I need to be unbent. I need the God who unbends things. It sounds like cool water on a hot day to me. Tell you, I'll tell you what. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus sets us free by his victory over darkness and brings new life, new hope, and healing. Amen.